0: Today's reading is 2 Corinthians 12:1 through 10. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, This is the word of God. Thanks. You may be seated.
1: My name is Daniel Long, um, and up here with me is Jason Baer. So this summer, if you've been around, you know that we've had different voices in our community um, sharing with us from God's word, and Jason is going to be sharing with us um, something that's been on his heart. So, Jason, how long you've been a part of Grace for about how long?
2: Uh, about twelve years.
1: So twelve years, and he's deeply connected to this group of people, teaching in various ways and in different classes. Um, and I think it was, he was kind of caught off guard when we said, hey, Jason, would you come and preach? Uh, he's your professor at Loyola Marymount, right? Mm-hmm. He's a professor there and um, he's like, yeah. And we just asked, would you please come and share something from your heart that you, that you want to offer to us? And you said, yes. And so he's here this morning and um, we're in for a treat. So thank you for the okay. gift. Yeah. Thanks.
2: Um, yeah, it is, a, it is a, a blessing to be able to talk with you this morning. He um, didn't mention that I'm a professor of philosophy, um, so I'm not a theologian and I'm not a preacher, uh, so what you're, you're in for this morning is basically a philosopher's uh, best attempt at a sermon. <laughs> the topic that I'll be talking about this morning is limitations. And I hope you'll just let that word sink in for a moment limitations. What I hope to do is talk a little bit with you first about the role that limitations play in our lives, how many of us tend to respond to those limitations, some of the shortcomings of that way of responding. And then I also hope to identify for you uh, an alternative way of thinking about and responding to our limitations. And and that discussion will put us in the vicinity of some pretty big ideas like pride and humility. And it will also take us back to the nub of um, the passage from 2 Corinthians that Dan just read for us. So that's the plan. I'd like to begin um, by having you complete a sentence. Life is, try to identify just one word. Life is short. You can write it down. You can make a mental note, however you want to do it. Um, that's actually only half the sentence. So. Complete the rest of the sentence, life is blank because of how would you complete that sentence i 'm sure there are as many responses as there are people in the room, but um, I suspect that that many of us might have have if forced to just think off the cuff and and honestly um, responded by saying. Life is hard. And if you said life is hard, you might have completed the rest of the sentence by saying, Life is hard because of things like illness, loss, sin, accident, tragedy, death. I'm going to call those things, the the things that make life hard, limitations. And the first thing I'd like to emphasize for you is that life is filled with limitations. And to illustrate that point, I'm going to describe for you six different kinds of limitations that all of us are confronted with. First of all, we face physical limitations. Our bodies get sick and die. They're susceptible to disease and disability. We aren't as physically strong or capable as we'd like to be, or as we once were. We also face metaphysical limitations. What are those? Well, we wish we could turn back time, or fast forward to a different part of our lives, or to a different part of the world, We wish we could solve the problems of the world or the problems in our own lives with a snap of our fingers. If only we could... (laughs) Just thinking about some of you and um, how this connects with your life. So, If only we could undo certain tragic and life-altering events. but we can't. We don't have that power. We also face intellectual limitations. Even for the most knowledgeable and smartest among us, there's so much we don't know, so much we can't know. What does the future hold? What will I, what will I be like or do when I grow up? Will I get married? Whom will I marry? Will I have children? When will I die? How will I die? We also face psychological limitations. Our very sanity is a fragile good. Some of us are tormented by a past event or paralyzed by anxiety about the future. Sometimes, if not often, life feels overwhelming. We're morally limited. Each of us is morally broken. We try to do good, but we consistently fail. We disappoint and hurt others, and we do so repeatedly. There's darkness in our hearts that we alone know about. Finally, we face spiritual limitations. We feel spiritually inadequate. God feels distant from us. We want to pray, but we don't. We feel inspired in one moment to deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus, and then in the next moment, this inspiration has faded, and we find ourselves distracted by what we know to be trivial and worldly concerns. Life is filled with limitations. Now let's think about how we respond. How do we respond to these limitations? And here I'd like you to complete this sentence for yourself. I respond to my limitations by doing what? If you're anything like me, you might complete this sentence by saying, I respond to my limitations by denying, resisting, attempting to transcend or overcome those limitations. And that's not always a bad thing. Some limitations should be overcome. Part of what it is to mature and grow as a human being is to overcome certain limitations. However, the second main point I'd like to emphasize with you is that often we resist our limitations out of prideful and ultimately self-destructive impulses. These impulses are several. I'm going to focus on four, and they are certainty, control, self-sufficiency, and perfection. These, again, are familiar human impulses that put us on a collision course with our limitations. Taken together, they comprise a powerful and dangerous form of human pride. So first, many of us crave certainty. We want to know for sure that things will work out. That our deeply held and most important beliefs are true. That others can be trusted. That our children, or if you're a child, that our parents or grandparents or siblings will be safe. That everything will be okay. And so we obsess about these things, doing everything possible to eliminate the uncertainty. Second, many of us also have a desperate need for control. We need to be in charge of our own lives, our own futures, and the expectations that others place on us. We work tirelessly to control the short-term and long-term outcomes of our efforts. We try to inform and fix how others perceive us. Sometimes we try to control and manipulate manipulate the behavior of other people. Third, we are often driven by a sense of self-sufficiency. We want to do things on our own, in our own strength and power. We don't want to have to rely on or depend on the help, or the resources of others. Fourth, many of us desire perfection. We want to get things exactly right. We can't handle making mistakes. We're uncomfortable with struggle or failure. We want to think of ourselves, if not as perfect, then at least as very good or better than most people. We pride ourselves on our own excellence and righteousness. As a result, when we're confronted with our moral defects or flaws, our tendency is to deny or to be defensive about them. So call this overall way of being the way of human pride. Some of us will identify with it more than others, but I suspect that most of us will be able to see ourselves in that description or in some of those qualities, at least to some extent. The third main point I really want to emphasize is that the way of pride is hopeless and deeply misguided. It's hopeless for several reasons. Certainty is mostly an impossibility. I think professionally about knowledge, so I can tell you. You can take that on good authority, if nothing else. Certainty is mostly an impossibility. We can't be sure of what the future holds. Try as we might, we don't know how things will turn out. We have no guarantee of how others will treat us or how our loved ones will fare. Similarly, very little is under our ultimate control. Our lives, even our individual choices, are subject to outside influences. And we certainly can't control with much success what others do or how they view us. Our sense of control is mostly an illusion. Nor are we self-sufficient. None of us can make it on his or her own. At one point or another, each of us requires the substantial assistance and support of others. We do not, within ourselves, contain the resources that we need to flourish. Finally, we live in a very imperfect world. Our efforts, abilities, and very selves are profoundly flawed. Mistakes are unavoidable. Even our best laid plans go awry. Failure happens. We're also imperfect as people. Most of us can't even manage to be very good most of the time. We do what's bad for ourselves, we do what's bad for others, and we do this over and over. The way of pride is not just hopeless. It's also profoundly misguided. And it's profoundly misguided because our greatest good, our greatest good, consists in a state of deep dependence. Your greatest good, my greatest good, consists in a state of deep dependence dependence on each other and ultimately on God. It's good for us not to know everything. It's good for us not to be capable of everything or to be able to get by entirely on our own strength and resources and righteousness. We are, by nature, limited and dependent creatures. This takes us back to the passage from 2 Corinthians. Paul makes clear that that he's got a lot of abilities, a lot of credentials, revelations, but he says, I'm not going to boast in those things. He says, I am going to boast in my weakness. What could this mean? What could it mean, and why would Paul possibly be interested in, in boasting In his weaknesses? I think there are two parts to the answer to that question. First, Paul views his greatest good, he views his ultimate happiness and flourishing as consisting in his experience of the sufficiency, the sufficiency. Of God's grace. And by that sufficiency, he doesn't just mean when God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, he doesn't just mean it's it's good enough, it'll do the job. He means it's all you need. It's all you ultimately really need to be well. Secondly, Paul understands that God's grace is not manifested in people who are living in their own strength. Who are self sufficient, who know everything and, control, and can control what they want to. Rather, he's aware that the power and grace of God are manifested in persons who know they need it and who are open to receiving it. For that reason, then, Paul embraces, he even celebrates his weaknesses and limitations. For in doing so, he opens himself up to the grace and power of God, and thus to his own greatest good and well-being. This leads to a fourth point, which is that there is an antidote. There is an antidote to the way of pride, and we can call it the way of humility. Humility. As Paul's words and thoughts illustrate, this way involves, one, being honest. Being honest with ourselves and being honest with others about our many limitations. And second, it involves learning to regard and experience our limitations as an occasion for resting in the sufficiency of God's grace. It's a matter of leaning into, rather than resisting or denying or trying to overcome our limitations, so that we can better depend on and live out of an awareness of God's sustaining presence. I'm told that 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 there are lots of little people in the room because it's, it's still summer and a lot of the Sunday school classes uh, are, are not meeting. So I, I want to say a word to the little people in the room. The rest of us have something important to learn from you on these points. You haven't yet learned to try to resist or hide or overcome some of your most basic limitations. You know you need other people to care for you. You know that you have a lot to learn, and there's a lot you don't know. And you know, when you've had a good nap at least, that you can't do everything and be everything. And by and large, you're okay with that. And as a result of how you experience your limitations and what you don't try to do with those limitations, you are more fully yourselves. And this frees you up to be more present with and to give more freely to other people. That's why you're a blessing to other people. So compared with the little people in the room, we have a lot to learn and a lot more work to do, the rest of us, if we hope to live in the way of humility. Last thing I'd like to do is is address the question of, okay, what what are some things, what are some practical things that we can do to enter into this way? I'm going to mention four practices that I've found in my own feeble and, um, and... Uh, imperfect attempts to abide in the path of humility. The first is just a principle that I've heard on many occasions from a good friend of mine and a good friend of many people here, Steve Porter. I've heard him say a number of times, talk about the importance of staying down, stay down, stay down. And this... um, of advice is so fitting for talking about humility because the, the root word of humility is humus, which means earth, ground, soil. The idea is just that from moment to moment, each of us has, a, has, has the opportunity to make a conscious choice to stay down, to remain low to the ground, not to rise up, not to set foot. On the slippery slope of control and strength and ambition, stay down. for each of the, for each of the um, exercises or practices here, or at least for three of the first four, I'm also going to try to just, I'm going to just give you some, some, some prayerful words that you might say to yourself. Um, when trying to engage in this practice. And, 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 And here's what you might say when you're trying to stay down. It's okay. It's okay for me to stay down. I don't need to rise up and assert my strength. Your grace is sufficient for me. A second opportunity, or a second practice, is to seize windows of opportunity to own our mistakes. I think that this practice has special application to the area of relational uh, conflicts and arguments. So I'll speak from experience here. Um, if I'm having an argument with with one of my children or with my or with my wife Erin, there's usually this 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 small window of opportunity in which I can step back and recognize that yes, I've done something to contribute to this conflict maybe it's small maybe it's large but there's some window of time where i can acknowledge yeah i see i did something and and in that moment uh, sometimes probab- probab- maybe more often than not i'll 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 push that awareness away and i'll dig my heels in and i'll stick to my points and articulate and verbalize and defend my points. But sometimes I'm able to um, take what feels like a big risk of just saying the first words to begin to acknowledge my part in this conflict. And then I find if I can just take one foot down that path and, and start to 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 own my part of the conflict and then maybe elaborate on it a little bit and say then realize how that must have seemed to you and I believe you deserve better treatment than that. By the time I'm done articulating and saying those things, an amazing thing happens. I'm grounded. (laughs) I'm down. I'm no longer thinking. Well, what about but your part of it was this or that. And another amazing thing is the effect that it tends to have on the other person. It frees them up to own their limitations and mistakes. So the second practice is seizing those little windows of control that we have, little windows of opportunity where we can own our mistakes and limitations. And something I might say to myself in a situation like that, where I'm seeing the window and not sure how I'm going to react, Your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. I don't need to be right. I don't need to have the final word. I can own my part of the conflict and be content with that. A third practice is to intentionally confess our limitations and to seek support. From trusted others. For many of us, that's hard. We have a hard time disclosing our weaknesses or failures or vulnerabilities with other people. We fear what they might think of us. We don't want to inconvenience them. <laughs> but of course, when we strike that posture with other people, it's very hard to then turn and be vulnerable and dependent on God. Conversely, when we can be vulnerable and dependent on those we know and trust, that can free us up. It can facilitate a greater openness toward and dependence on God. So, just intentionally confessing our limitations and seeking support from others, surrendering our self-sufficiency, the illusion of control and self-sufficiency. And there I might say to myself, I can't do it on my own. There's no real point in trying. nor Nor do I need others to think that I can do it on my own, to perceive me as someone who can do it on his own. Your grace is sufficient for me. The last practice is one that, that I feel like I've only really begun to understand uh, relatively recently, and it's the practice of being with people who aren't fixated on or obsessed with overcoming and transcending their limitations, and to illustrate kind of the power and logic of this point, I want to share with you um, a story. Uh, My wife Erin and I lived for four years up in Seattle when I was in graduate school at the University of Washington. For almost that entire time, I volunteered on a weekly basis at the mental health ministry um, at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. And I led a a sort of a a weekly prayer group slash support group slash um, um, bible study one of the people in that study was a man named Tim Jessick, and Tim was probably in his late thirties um, early forties long hair long black hair scruffy beard um, tim tim um, s- suffered from schizophrenia and other and other mental disabilities and illnesses he He wasn't homeless but he 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 looked like he could be homeless. Anyway, um, Tim is a dear man and, and, and was a blessing to me in the, the four years that, that I knew him there. And um, anytime you ask Tim, Tim, so, so how are you doing, Tim? Or Tim, what have you been up to? He'd always say the same thing. He'd say, smirking. Tim, how are you doing? I'm smirking. <laughs> smirking at the devil. So fast forward to a year later after we'd we'd left Seattle. I was interviewing um, for a a faculty position in the philosophy department at a a university in Texas. And at the time, as is the case now, the the job market was extremely competitive. Uh, I think there were four tenure track, excuse me, four PhDs in philosophy for every one tenure track position. So this is a very very high stakes position. It, I was a finalist for the position. There were maybe two or other three two or three other people at most who were still in the running. So so I needed to be at the very top of my game. I needed to be perfect. Flawless. And part of the interview involved meeting with um, several high-up administrators in a a big, fancy conference room. Very formal, um, very tense for me, very high stakes. And um, at one point in the interview, the provost of the university, um, who's the the, the top academic officer, um, he looked at my resume and he said, he said, uh, Jason, I see that for 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 four years you uh, volunteered at the um, mental health ministry at the University of Presbyterian Church. What's um, you know what what was that about? And when he asked me that question, caught me completely off guard, and I completely choked up like I'm doing now. And I immediately felt. All the tension in the room just left. I immediately was on the ground. And I've thought about that a lot and and, and puzzled about that experience. Like, Why did I have such a strong emotional reaction to that question? And I think I know why. When we are around people who are not obsessed or fixated on trying to overcome or hide their limitations. And people like Tim Jessick and Rob Thurston and David Zucker, they're over that. Hiding and overcoming their limitations is just not part of their world, not part of their psychology. And when we are around people who are comfortable with their limitations, that can have a dramatic reorienting effect on us. And I think what happened to me in that moment is that I was entirely in my own strength. And just the idea just the memory of these people just knocked me down to the ground in the best way possible, in the way that brought me peace and comfort in that moment. And so a fourth thing that we can do to find our way on to the the path of humility is to be with people who aren't fixated On transcending and overcoming and denying and concealing their limitations. I'm going to say a prayer for us now. Lord, your grace is sufficient for me, and your grace is sufficient for us. Please, please make that manifest and clear and comforting to everybody in this room. And use us, use us to manifest the sufficiency of your grace to each other. In your son's name I pray. Amen.